Well, let's pray together one more time. I ask very personally now, Father, for your help so that I would be faithful to your word. Guard my lips from any ill-advised way of expressing things. And grant, I pray, that these friends would be illumined by the Holy Spirit and I would be anointed by him so that there would be a coming together of understanding and of affection for the truth that is appropriate to its value. And I pray, Lord, for the ripple effect of this time together, that it would be for the sake of hundreds of churches and neighborhoods and nations, marriages, children, businesses, so that blessing would fall from heaven because of what we've done here. And above all, may Jesus Christ be admired in a way that is satisfying to our soul and a great honor to him. In his name we pray. Amen. Yesterday, I tried to define what it is to be loved by God. Namely, it isn't being made much of by him. It is being enabled by him through the cross and through the work of the Holy Spirit to enjoy making much of him forever. Now, tomorrow, what I want to do is ask, if that's the way God loves us, then how do we love him? What's the reflex of a God-centered love toward us when it finds an appropriate reverberation in our hearts, how do we love him? Now, there is a third part to this complex of thought, and that is, how do you love other people? And I thought, though that's number three, that I could stick it in here, but the more I thought about how to do this, to do number three in the spot of number two before I lay out number two, it didn't work. And so I'm going to give message, yesterday's message all over again <laughs> to all you people. But I'm going to use totally different text to do it. In other words, I'm going to make a case for God's supremacy in loving you and me. And then, I hope, have time at the end, having reestablished yesterday's point afresh, try to do something on how we love each other because of this. Because if you get a handle on what it is to be loved with God-centered love, it changes everything. Changes the way you relate to God and changes the way you relate to people. Changes the way you define the meaning, purpose, the end of your life. So here's the way we'll go about it this morning. Um, If you find maybe the six most Remarkable ways that God has loved the world or loved his church. And you analyze those six ways of loving and you find that in every one of them, God was making himself supreme in the act of loving us. Then you're forced to conclude that to be loved by God 
is to have God devote himself to displaying himself to you for your enjoyment of him. So what I did was try to walk from the beginning of, I don't know how to say this, I don't want to say beginning of time because it's before time, from the beginning to the end and look at the six ways that God has undertaken massively to love us. And what I have found is that in all six of them, the goal of God in loving you is to glorify God. This is very crucial. And you'll see how crucial it is, I think, as we unfold these. So let me just take them one at a time, and then in the time we have left, I'll try to bend it out horizontally so that if this is the way he's loving us, then how then should we love each other? Let's start with predestination. That's back as far as I want to push it. So before the foundation of the world, God elects and he predestines his own. Here are the key verse from Ephesians 1. I'll read Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. God chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He predestined us in love to be his, notice that, he predestined us in love to be his sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And now here comes the key phrase, the purpose of it all. Unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Before the foundation of the world, God chose you and predestined you to be his children unto the praise of the glory of his grace in love. So what is love? Love is to be so targeted by God that you are brought to a point where you Praise the glory of his grace. So he's the center. He's the star. He's the goal. And love is to get you to a place where you can see him, know him, and enjoy making much of him forever. Unto the praise of the glory of his grace. I mentioned C.S. Lewis yesterday. He has had a tremendous impact in my life ever since college days until now. And in his book on the Psalms, he's very honest and says that in his early days, in the early 20s, as he was being pursued by the hound of heaven and brought relentlessly to Christianity, one of the stumbling blocks he could not get over until divine grace illumined him in this regard was that God Everywhere he read in the Bible, especially in the Psalms, sounded like a vain old woman wanting compliments. This is a big stumbling block. I read it in the London Financial Times a week ago. A man who says he cannot bow to Christianity because of God's demand for praise. And he sounds like an old woman who wants to be complimented all the time. 
Well, what I want to do is to say, yes, he is demanding compliments. He is demanding admiration. He is demanding praise all the time, everywhere, in every act. And that this is the essence of his love. Because you were made for admiration of him. I was just thinking this morning, I've got to speak in a couple of weeks at um, a graduation service. And I think I, I, the Lord gave me this morning the, what he wants me to say. I think I'm going to say it here too. <laughs> and it'll, it would be called something like uh, the consummation of history and the admiration of Christ. We were made, history was created so that you might admire. Ayn Rand, who wrote Atlas Shrugged, The Fountainhead, The Virtue of Selfishness, an atheist, a philosopher, a brilliant woman who is probably today in hell, to my great sorrow, said in one of her characters in Atlas Shrugged, which I thought was a great book, only dead wrong. Admiration is the rarest of pleasures. Now for her, that was a cynical comment about the absence of atlases in the world. Where are the businessmen philosophers? That was her God. She hated Christianity. But that sentence was absolutely true. Admiration is the rarest of pleasures. And the reason is because we were made for one colossal great admiration. God. And he is seldom seen for who he is. And in order to bring us to the fulfillment of that profound, deepest joy and satisfaction, he presents himself to us in every act of love as the goal of our lives. Here I am. Know me. See me. Admire me. And bring that admiration to climax with compliments of me and praises to me. The solution for C.S. Lewis was to notice that praise was the consummation of all authentic joy. He commented about people praising their favorite wines and praising their favorite sports teams and praising their favorite poets and praising their favorite landscapes and praising their little children and praising their girlfriends and boyfriends, the, the mouth, the world, he said, rings with praise for one reason. It's not added on to joy. It's the consummation of joy. And therefore, to seek his admiration and his praise is to seek our fullest and consummate joy. Therefore, it is love. God is the one being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is the highest virtue and the most loving act. It cannot be any other way. You may not follow him in this. If you exalt yourself, you detract people from what satisfies them, namely God. Therefore, you can't imitate this. Predestination. Second, 
creation. Isaiah 43, 6. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. Do you wonder why you are in existence? There is no doubt why you, why you are in existence. God created you for his glory. And that was an act of love. Because your deepest satisfaction and your most everlasting and satisfying joy lies in seeing and savoring the glory of God. And when you see it and savor it, it is magnified. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. His his power and his beauty and his all Satisfying perfections reverberate most resoundingly, clearly, powerfully in the satisfied soul. Not in the dutiful soul. You try to do worship out of duty or study out of duty or service out of duty. He's not shown to be great. He's shown to be a slave master. But if you do worship out of joy, if you serve out of joy, if you lay your life down for other people out of joy, people are going to say, what kind of treasure must you have to be able to let goods and kindred go like this for me? And then he seemed to be great. When it says, you were created for his glory, Beware lest you think you add to his glory. This word glorify is very tricky because there are other English words that end in F-Y that mean increase the glory of. So if we said... I'll just go ahead and say it. This is a pretty sterile room, right? (laughs) And suppose somebody said, uh, I think we need to beautify this place. Let's put some flowers somewhere, you know? (laughs) This is Southern California. Things are green here all the time, right? They're brown in Minnesota three-fourths of the year. So beautify would mean what? Increase the beauty. So if you take that over to God... And say glorify means increase the glory, you blaspheme. That's heretical. So beware when you hear the term, you were created to glorify God. Don't think you were created to increase the glory of God, to meet some deficiency in God, to add to the the shortfall of poor God. And the best analogy I know to help people get a handle on what beautify, glorify, magnify means is by contrasting the telescope with the microscope and how they magnify. So if I say, let us all magnify Jesus Christ together, do we mean it with a telescope or a microscope? Now, a microscope takes teeny little things and makes them look bigger than they are. And a telescope takes 
unbelievably big things that look little and makes them look more like what they really are. Which way should you magnify God? Tell me, telescope or microscope? Good, thank you. If you try to magnify God as a microscope, you are a blasphemer. Poor God, he's so little. I must help him look better than he really is so people can put their trust in him. That's blasphemy. The true state of affairs is God is breathtakingly magnificent. And in a world that is under the power of the devil, saturated with the flesh, every possible demonic and fleshly and worldly means is used to keep us in the dark, he looks at best like a teeny pinprick of light in a big night sky. And all the other exciting things around us seem so much better. And your job on planet Earth is to put a telescope to people's eyes. So they say, how did I miss that? And then the little, the little firecrackers of their lives, the little candles of their lives. I remember Soren Kierkegaard has a great parable about this, the carriage that goes out into the night. And on the old carriages in Sarn Kierkegaard's day, they had candles on the carriages so that there were these big things and the wind was protected because they had globes around them. And so to to see at night, they'd put the, the candles up here, one, two here, and two back there. And you'd go out into the night, and with the candles here, you look up, you couldn't see a thing. And his whole point was, God is in the business of blowing the candles out so you can see the stars. Most of the stuff you like in this world are candles. But they're so close that they, they keep the stars from shining through. Even though a star is about six trillion bigger times than the sun. And you don't even notice it because this little candle of pornography or this little candle of trying to make good grades or this little candle of trying to get your figure just right or this little candle is just it's just so bright and dominant you can't see beyond it this text says you were created for the glory of god so help each other now you're, you can hear love of each other now it's coming out here how do you love each other in view of how god loves you Take a gun and go out and just shoot out some candles. It might mean take a hammer and just put it through the front of your computer screen. <laughs> Number three, the incarnation. Romans fifteen eight and 9. Christ became a servant to the circumcision to show God's truthfulness. So here he is. He's, he's come into the world as a Jew, a servant to the circumcision. Christ became a, a Jewish person born under the law, a servant to the circumcision. Why? To show God's truthfulness. 
in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. In other words, Jesus became a man to prove God tells the truth. God's the issue here. But that's not all. And in order that the Gentiles, so first he came to the Jews to vindicate the promises made to the patriarchs, and second purpose for his coming, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Now notice the two coming together here. This is just a beautiful text to help you put it together. That is, the self-centeredness of God and the love of God. Because notice what it is we glorify him for. Namely, mercy. You get the mercy, he gets the glory. That's the essence of my theology. I get the help, he gets the honor. I get the joy, he gets the credit. It's the best of all worlds. It keeps God at the center and makes me as happy as I can possibly be. I minister in a denomination own, owning that owns Bethel College and Seminary. And uh, it's about eight miles from my church. And students come to our, our, our church and we get into conversations sometimes about a paper that they need to write called an integrative senior paper in the seminary in which you uh, write your vision of what it is after three or four years of theological education holds it all together. What's the big, overarching, integrating motif of the Bible and of theology and of life and world? What's the big picture that you come away from from your studies with? And students that have hung around my church for a while, they all write the same thing. (laughs) It's the glory of God. This is a given. This is just easy. And they make a case from the Bible and Jonathan Edwards and... That it's the glory of God. And they get into big controversies. And I scratch my head. How can they get into controversies? This is not controversial. This is easy. But here's the controversy. Others, for whatever reason, have this notion that love is the integrating motif. God loves the world. And everything comes under the covenant of love. And everything can be understood in terms of love. Now, that's not too bad. That's not a bad thing to say about God. God is love, according to 1 John 4. But what, what's wrong with that? This phrase right here is the phrase that I point students to so they can just... In order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy... Here you've got mercy and love, and here you've got God being glorified. Now, in the order of the grammar, which is the means and which is the end? In order that God might be glorified for his mercy. So that's why I stress what I stress. The love of God is central, but it is 
in order that we might see the full panorama of the glory of God. God's love to us is his doing whatever he has to do, even at the cost of his own son's life, so that we would see and taste and savor and enjoy and magnify the whole panorama of his glory, which is more than love. You cannot account for hell in terms of love. You cannot account for all of God's character only in terms of love, which is why Romans 9.22 says he desired to show his wrath and make known his power. Wrath is not love, and God means for it to be known in the universe. The whole panorama of the glory of God is what we will see, know, admire, stand in awe of, be satisfied by, and love is that massive commitment to get us there, to enjoy it forever. Number four, propitiation. I could choose other, I know I could choose other ways that God loves and saves, but this one in Romans three twenty five and 26 is so powerful and so clear, I think it would be a good one to use. Propitiation. We've seen predestination, creation, incarnation, and now we're at propitiation. Romans three twenty five. God put Christ forward as a propitiation. That means an appeasement of his own wrath. God... Wanting to placate his own just and holy wrath interposes the blood of his son in order to subdue his own wrath justly that he might save. But now listen how it's said. God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Here comes the sentence. This was to demonstrate God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. So why did he put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood? This was to publicly demonstrate for all the demons and all the world and all the church to see My righteousness stands even though I did something in history which makes it look like I don't care about my glory. Namely, I passed over sins. And what is sin according to Romans 3.23? Falling short of the glory of God. If God Almighty just passes over sins, let it go. What does it look like he disregards? His glory. And if God disregards the infinitely valuable, he's unjust. And this text says, therefore, He put Christ forward as a propitiation to demonstrate his justice, 
his righteousness. I do not disregard my glory. I do not allow it to be trampled underfoot by men without vindicating my infinite value. My son's death is the demonstration. I do not take the neglecting and lacking of my glory lightly. That's what he's saying. So the very heart of our salvation, Christ's death for our sins, Christ's righteousness as our robe, is not merely a means by which we are made clean and acceptable, but a means by which God's righteousness is vindicated. So it's a display of his glory and the value of his glory and the righteousness in upholding that glory. That's what the cross is at bottom. And because it is that, it can be love. Because the love purchases our forgiveness. But I, I like to ask people, so what's the big deal about forgiveness? Why do you want to be forgiven? Because sometimes, you know, when we're talking about the benefits of the cross or the benefits of God's love, we terminate on certain words and we don't think through what good they are. Most everybody likes the word forgiveness when we are receiving it. And I do, too. It's a very precious thing. But you need to ask, why? Why do you want to be forgiven by God for your sins? Now, here's the wrong answer. I don't want to go to hell. Now, it's not a wrong answer. It's just not an ultimate answer. I don't either. I, I am scared of hell. And that fear is to take me somewhere. And if it doesn't, it doesn't mean no good whatsoever. So what's the real positive reason for why forgiveness is so precious? It removes the barriers to fellowship with God. That's the goal. God is the goal. Forgiveness is just a code word for getting to God and liking being there. Because if he's angry, you won't want to be there. But if he's not angry, you will want to be there. And wanting to be there is worship. And that's what he's after. So even the word forgiveness, which you know may sound very man-preoccupied, getting sin out of the way is out of the way for what? If a husband and a wife need to forgive each other, that's not an end in itself. They want the restoration of the hugging and the kissing and the talking and the peace in the kitchen. They don't like all this tension that this is just so horrible. But the forgiveness is just a little get it out of the way. Get the anger out of the way. Get the resentments out of the way. Get the grudges out of the way. Let's love each other again. And what is that? Looking at each other and liking being together. That's what God wants. Look at him. Like him. Delight in him. Number five. Sanctification. Philippians chapter one. We've seen predestination, creation, incarnation, 
propitiation, the work of the cross, and now we're looking at the work of God in sanctification. Philippians chapter 1, verse 11. It is my prayer, Paul says, collapsing it down now, that you may be filled with the fruits of righteousness which come through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. God is at work in you by the Holy Spirit to fill you with fruits of righteousness which come through Jesus Christ, now to what end? To the glory and praise of God. Why is God making you into a new person? Why is he sanctifying you, weaning you off of sin? Answer, to the glory and praise of God. So sanctification is to display God. You are being shaped in the image of God's Son to put God on display. You are being made chips off the old block so the block can be known. There's a verse in First Peter. Justin and I, as we were praying this morning before we came over, referred to it. And it's a verse that functions as a kind of philosophy of ministry verse at our church which captures this. It goes like this. This is 1 Peter 4, 11. Let him who serves serve in the strength that God supplies so that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs dominion forever. So we're called to serve. That's what sanctification is. It's making servants out of people. But how do you serve so that you don't get the glory, but God gets the glory? How do you so serve? How do you do a thing so that you don't get the glory, God gets the glory? How do you do Matthew five sixteen? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory not to you, but to your Father in heaven. How do you do that? And that's what First Peter four eleven is designed to answer. Namely, let him who serves serve in the strength that God supplies. You must assume a demeanor of absolute helplessness and learn a way, I call it living by faith in future grace, by which you lean on the enabling power of God given to you moment by moment as you walk into the future such that you are doing what you do in the power that he supplies because the giver gets the glory. We must become the kind of people who so lean on God's moment by moment enabling power that when we do what we do, God gets the credit. And there is no more satisfied way to live than that because we're getting the moment by moment help and he's getting the moment by moment glory we get the help he gets the glory we get the satisfaction of being loved and cared for I mean isn't it an amazing thing to hear God say in Hebrews 13 fear not what can man do to you I will not leave you I will not forsake you do not be afraid 
We get all that promised help. I'll be with you. I will help you. I'll never leave you. I'll stand by you. I'll uphold you. I'll help you. I'll strengthen you. Now give me the glory. I mean, it's the best of all worlds. I get everything I need as long as I don't demand the credit, the glory. Just give it all back. Be a mirror. Be a reflection. Lastly, consummation. The end of the age. Jesus coming. Why is he coming? Why is Jesus coming? Listen to the answer in 2 Thessalonians 1.9. Those who do not obey the gospel will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction and exclusion from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at in all who have believed. This is what Ayn Rand had no idea about. She said, admiration is the rarest of pleasures. It was more rare to her than it had to be. It doesn't have to be totally rare. I'm not admirable in any way that could satisfy your soul. You were not created to admire me or any human. You were created to admire an infinitely admirable Christ. Right now, we walk by faith and not by sight. We see through a glass darkly, and what we see in the Bible in the cross is beautiful if you have eyes to see. Foolishness to the Greeks, a stumbling block to the Jews, but to those who are called Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. But there is coming a day when the skies are going to be rolled up like a scroll and this glorious Christ whose hair is like white wool in the image in Revelation and whose chest is like gold and whose face shines like the sun so that you can't look upon it will stand forth from his invisibility and it says all the angels of heaven will be with him. Heaven will be desolate except for the throne of almighty God the Father and every angel will come attending him and there will be lightning from west to east and then you'll know what admiration is according to this verse. On that day he comes to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at. That's an old-fashioned word for admired. He's coming to be marveled at. So somebody asks you, why is Jesus coming back? Answer, he's coming back to be admired. In the way that he ought to be admired today. And I want to get a jump on that day. And admire him with all I can. And then in this last 30 seconds, the way you love people, surely you can finish this sermon. The way you love people is by the spillover 
of your joy in admiring God and the pursuit of their same enjoyment in admiring God, which means your love for others has to be God-centered and it has to be essentially the display of God in the world. That's both deed, let your light so shine that men may see your good deeds and give glory and thus be satisfied, and it is speech. So, seminary people who are here aiming at ministry, undergraduates who are here aiming at secular employments and all kinds and ministries perhaps, make your life permeated with the spillover of your admiration in the all-satisfying God and make your aim by speech and deed to display him in such a way that you are pursuing people into this experience of infinite, everlasting, all-satisfying admiration. That's what it is to love other people. And there's a key called suffering because... The world really doesn't care about what you say. And the world really doesn't care about the bad things you avoid. The world cares. Will you lay down your life to help me? Or to help those who don't have any witness in the world. The unreached peoples. Or to those most disadvantaged because of the AIDS plague and 10 million orphans in Africa. Will you risk malaria? Will you risk being forgotten in the homeland? Will you risk losing everything because you are so totally satisfied in your God? Then the world will listen and they'll wonder, what must this treasure be that keeps you joyfully loving me. Let's pray. Father, these are miracles, and I just beg of you that you take word and make them reality. So transform our hearts that we see you for who you are, admire you in a way that corresponds to your infinite value, find ourselves weaned off the candles on our carriage that are blinding us to the stars, and then may we ride that carriage right into war to take a telescope to the world. They're so needy. A thousand needs are out there waiting for us to show who our treasure is. Take us, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.